You're listening to The Devoted Podcast, where our desire is to be women devoted to the Word of God. We're so glad you're here, and we pray you'll be challenged and encouraged as we look to God's Word together. Hey gals, welcome to The Devoted Podcast. Hope you guys are having a great week. We are going to launch into what is part two of what we started last week, talking about cultural Christianity and what that is and why we care. You know, um, so if you didn't listen to this, I'm just going to tell you, pause right now, just go back and listen to the first one or else I'm not going to make a lot of sense, or at least hopefully it will make more sense if you listen to the last week's first. But it's an important one because I think this is something that we just culturally, we're seeing the tentacles of the world just kind of seep into even our definitions of what it means to be a Christian. And like we always talk about here on the podcast, we want to make sure we are looking at what God's word says for us to do. And we are choosing to do that unapologetically, absolutely no questions asked. We want to recognize that the word of God has authority on our life, not what culture says, not what the world says, not what the enemy who truly is the one that does desire for us to just buy this load of lies to even what it means to be a Christian. And this matters so much because it's obviously one that has truly eternal ramifications. We're not talking about something that's just a preference of something. No, we're talking about something that is literally about what does the Bible say about what it means to be a Christian and what it does not mean. So I told you guys last week, I have this list that I'm going off of that I thought was done really well by gotquestions.org. It's a great site just for questions and things like that. So I've used some of their framework of these markers of cultural Christianity, just so that we can kind of look and see some of these things, and then hopefully mark some of these things and go, ooh, do I see that? And make sure that we aren't giving into what is a cultural definition for what it means to be a Christian as opposed to a biblical one and what the Bible says for us. So just quickly, I'm not going to go through all of them again because you can listen to last week's to catch up. But the first couple that we addressed that are just kind of markers of what it means to identify as a a cultural Christian, this is what you're going to see. These are just generally some things. And the first one we looked at was denying the inspiration of scripture, you know, kind of picking and choosing not saying that the word of God is all inspired or that it should have authority on our life. That's one of those markers. Another one is ignoring or downplaying true repentance as the first step. You have to put that inspiration of scripture one. It's got to be first. But this one is such a big deal because we do want to just believe that we're all just basically good, right? That's what the world says that we are, as opposed to what the word of God says when Jesus says to repent, you know, and I love Acts 2, 38 through 39. And Peter said this, and this was the crux of what the early church was all about. Repent and be baptized, Peter said to them, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is biblically defining what it means to be a Christian, that you don't ignore that repentance is that first step to knowing God. You need that part. But cultural Christianity kind of doesn't want to talk about that part. Another one in cultural Christianity is to focus on Jesus's love and acceptance to the exclusion of his teaching on hell, obedience, and self-sacrifice. I gave you a couple examples last week of whether it's a love that's being redefined or things like that where we want to tweak it ever so slightly, but we don't want to focus on something, even something, a biblical definition of love that could 
therefore somehow exclude anyone. We don't want to do that. We don't want to talk about self-sacrifice. We don't want to deny ourselves anything. We want to just be happy. And man, if we're not happy, we clearly need to make a change, right? That's what the world says. So that is a more cultural definition of Christianity to focus on just Jesus's love at the exclusion of things that are also in scripture. Very important. Another one was tolerating or even celebrating ongoing sin while claiming to know God. And I didn't read this scripture last week, but we've talked about it in past episodes, even recently. But Romans 1, 31 through 32, it says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Those last couple words right there, those should really hit different today. Because not only are we talking about those who are just practicing sin, And yes, that should be clear. But now we have within the church itself, we have accepting those things, tolerating and not even just tolerating, really celebrating, because that's the direction we're going, particularly when it comes to the LGBTQ, all of that agenda is it is no longer even close to being palatable to just accepting or tolerating, but you need to be celebrating those things. And if you don't, then you are marked in culture as being a hater and you fill in the name that they'll give you, but that's a mark against you. But even Christians, so-called Christians, this cultural Christian term, they tolerate or even celebrate ongoing sin. And that is in contradiction to scripture. Another one we talked about last week is redefining scriptural truths to accommodate culture. Now, this kind of goes hand in hand with both the redefining love and also the continually practicing those those sins. And so that's where we ended last week was with those first few markers of cultural Christianity. But there's more. There's more, guys. So I want to unpack a couple more of these that I think are really important for us to see. So the next one on the list of marking these things that we can see culture defining Christianity as is understanding Jesus to be primarily a social reformer. Hmm. This one's a big one right now, right? The social justice movement in general, we think that it's been new to the last couple of years. It's really not. It's been around for a long, long time, and it has some really deep roots in previous decades. And so it's it's not new. But it's this idea that we just want to focus on how Jesus just did good things, and he wanted to reform our social structures rather than focusing on that who Jesus was and who he really claimed to be and what he was here for. And that is he came as a sacrifice for our sin, right? A couple of scriptures on this one. Mark 14, 7, this is Jesus talking. He says, for you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. This is what he says to his disciples. Now, he's not saying in that scripture to not help the poor and not be compassionate to those in need. That's not the point of what he's saying. But do you notice that within there, he says that you will always have the poor. And notice when Jesus came, his purpose was not to eradicate poverty. It could have been like, I mean, Jesus was God. He could have done anything he wanted and he could have chosen to just get rid of any kind of inequity, any kind of poverty, any kind of lesser conditions, but he didn't. 
He could have, but that was not his mission. And this is where we are so earthly minded at the expense of being eternal minded. Jesus's focus and ours needs to be on the soul and our eternal condition. Jesus came to save our souls, not to make sure we were comfortable or not to make sure that we, you know, were happy and healthy and wise. And, you know, those little sayings, those little bit of the prosperity gospel, that wasn't the purpose. But there is a focus among cultural Christianity and this, I keep saying that, and those definitions I gave you last week of Wikipedia and those kinds of things, those made it sound like that's just a non-religious group. And I think at one point it was, but it's very much even within mainline churches now, want to focus on Jesus being more of a social reformer rather than God in the flesh. That's a big one. So there's another marker of cultural Christianity. Another one is claiming God's promises while ignoring the requirements included with them. This one can be a a tough passage for us because this is the part that's going to require us to recognize that the Lord did not just give us his promise with no action from us. Now, I have to be careful with that because sometimes people can hear that and say, oh, well, you're saying then there's like something that we need to do like works wise in order to be saved. And that we know scripture doesn't say that, right? It says not of our works, lest no one can boast. But we are required to do some things. We're required to walk away from our sin. We're told to break off our sin. Psalm 50, verse 16 and 17 says, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Word telling us that we don't just get to recite God's word and just kind of give it flippant sort of lip service and then not let it make a change in us, not let us walk away from maybe the discipline it's asking you to do. Maybe the time that it's asking you to cast off something that is harming you, sinful behaviors, but instead readily obeying what God's word says, not just taking the parts that we like. Again, this is kind of like the picking and choosing of scripture that we referenced earlier, but realizing that we need to actually, his word have a purifying effect on us, right? That there's things that it should be cleansing us from, meaning we walk away from those things and not just stay in it. But to do that, that means that we have to die to some stuff of ourselves. First Peter 2.24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Those two words right there, might die. We don't like to die to our thing. You know, I've given you guys the example that when my kids are fighting, they're three boys and so they're ultra competitive and there's always got to be a winner, right? But they love it or maybe they don't love it so much. But it is a very common statement for mom to chime in when it just, we're just not reaching a consensus. And I say, somebody's got to die, meaning someone's got to die to their thing. You just need to sometimes just be unselfish. Or even if you're the one that's right and the other person is wrong, nope, just die. Just let it go. Die to your sin. And that self-denial, that part of doing something that you feel like there's almost an injustice to, you know, that I would be asked to do something like that. Nope, die to your thing. Die to your thing. I love that example in Philippians 2. The whole passage is verse 5 through 11. I'll just read little pieces of it. But speaking of wanting to see that we are defining 
Christianity as Christ would, well, the idea of that is to be like Christ, right? We want to be imitators of Christ, followers of Christ. And this is the model that Jesus gave us that in Philippians 2, 5, this is what Paul says. He says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, this is Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is, I mean, the cross, we lose it in our culture because we've read in the Bible. And so we know that that was a very common form of execution to the Romans. It was a humiliating, it was the most humiliating way that you could possibly die in that age. And that was the way that Christ chose to die for us in the most humiliating way possible. That's like he's actually physically dying for us, but talk about dying even to your dignity, dying to all of those things. That is the model that Christ gave us. So when we're wanting to look at biblically how we should be looking at what Christianity should look like, that's a stark contrast to what cultural Christianity is going to say, because it's going to say that you don't really need to die to your thing. We can just accept the promises and all of those, but we don't really want to do anything that would make us drastically change our behavior. So there's another one. So let's see. I know it's a long list, but cultural Christianity says that Jesus was just primarily more of a social reformer. Another mark that you got to watch out for is claiming the promises and not noting that there's any requirements there. Another one is denying or minimizing Jesus's claim that he is the only way to God. Again, not trying to weigh one being more important than the other one, but man, this one's a real big one, right? This is where the nonsense you hear from Oprah to any lots of new age, and it's not even just Oprah anymore. It's almost become more so mainstream to say that it's ridiculous to think that there's only one way to God, that there's lots of ways to God. This is nonsense, okay? So that should be a no-brainer for you if you hear that kind of thing. That is a mark of cultural Christianity. That is not what the Bible says, that it means to be a Christian. Basic scriptures on this, but John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. Okay, there was only one there, believes in him, believes in Jesus, that's it. And it was kind of a big deal. The, the rest is, this is again, one of those verses that you guys hear over and over and over. So you can sometimes tune it out. Try not to do that. Try to hear every word of that really important gospel passage right there. Because it, whoever believes in him, you got to believe in Jesus. And then that like next line, it says, should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the whole deal right there that we would have eternal life, that we would be eternally minded about these things. But it's that we believe in Jesus. John 14, 6 can't possibly, there's nowhere else that it says it more clear than that. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. It's pretty simple. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. There's only one way. I kind of like this. It's real simple. You can't mess it up, right? If there was a whole bunch of options, I would probably pick the wrong one. But the Word of God says that it's easy. It's easy here, guys. Jesus is the only way. Only one way. Cultural Christianity, whatever we want to label this as, is going to deny this claim or at least minimize that Jesus is the only way. Like, really? Is he really? Yeah. Whenever you hear that, I always think when somebody questions that, I go, that seems so narrow-minded, or is that really what the Bible says? That is such a mimic of exactly what the serpent said in the garden in Genesis. You know, when Eve 
said to him what tree they were supposed they could and could not eat from. And Satan responds and he says, did God really say? I mean, how classic is that? That is such a line that we should readily be able to connect the dots between culture and the enemy if that phrase of did God really say? Now, hopefully, if you hear that, you can turn right to your Bible and go, yep, he actually did. God really said this. End of discussion. But be careful of the worldly, the culture that wants to place doubts in your mind about, hmm, did God really say that? That's why, again, it's so important and why I love studying the Bible so much because it's never wrong. So now I forget stuff, right? I can't remember the whole Bible all in one fell swoop. So that's why you got to just stay in it and repeatedly go back and, and be reminded of what he says to us about who we are as Christians and what it means to be a Christian. So it's so important. So there was another one, denying or minimizing Jesus and his claim that he was the only way. Another cultural Christian mark is that if we just do religious stuff, you know, if we just do enough religious activity, you go to church a certain number of times per week or month or year or whatever, if we do those things, then that somehow signals that we have true devotion to Jesus. Like this says we're a Christian because we go to church basically is can be a marker of cultural Christianity. But going to church just that does not save you. You're not going to find chapter and verse on that anywhere. We know that going to church and being in fellowship with other believers is a really good thing for us. We know that the Bible tells us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but it does not say that that is the thing that saves us. Or what about this one? Talking a whole bunch about God in in a very general sense. Have you been around people that maybe they sound religious, maybe with some of their terms, or they mention God a lot, maybe in the conversation, but they sort of avoid actually talking about Jesus? It's almost like it might be more palatable to my audience if I just talk about God, but I, I don't necessarily talk about Jesus. And we're certainly not going to say anything about Jesus being Lord of our life or having authority in our life, that he's the one that saves us. We'll just kind of avoid those conversations. That can be another one of those things that we should mark a little bit. Harvard had it right. When I mentioned last week at their statement, their motto mission statement, when they were first created, that they said, the end of life, the, our main pursuit of life is to know God and Jesus Christ. They just said it right there, right in the mission statement, and that he, Jesus, is the foundation. That is so right on. But there can be a tendency within more of a cultural definition of Christianity to just kind of say, well, we'll just mention God, you know, here and there. It'll sound religious, but we won't, you know, get in too deep and talk about Jesus too much. I'm just going to say, moms, gals, Talk about Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Say his name. Say the name of Jesus. Not because it has, you know, if you say it a certain way, you know, like some of the crazy pastor you might hear on a radio or something that there's all the, you say it a certain way and there's a certain incantation. Nope, 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 nope. But the name of Jesus should give reverence and awe in us. It's Jesus, God in the flesh, that died for us. And that should. All in one fell swoop, man, bring a smile to your face, bring a reverence, bring a humility to us, but be familiar with the name of Jesus. Moms in your house, talk about Jesus a lot. Don't just talk about God in a general sense, but let your kids know who Jesus is. 
the world's definition is going to want to keep us almost at arm's length from Jesus. Jesus, we strive to have this personal relationship with Jesus. And so it's difficult to have relationship with someone you don't name. So name Jesus, talk about him. It encourages that relationship that we have with him. A couple more. One is seeing the protection and blessing that we may receive in our life or maybe goals that we've achieved seeing those things as the goal, as opposed to just an outcome of our relationship with the Lord. You know, this is the one where the Christian that wants to say it's just all about the blessed life, you know, that you're happy, that you're free from discomfort or pain. And again, that's just not biblical. Jesus said in John, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. Cool. You know, Put that, there's not a whole lot of mugs out there that say, in this world, you will have trouble. That's a biblical truth. There is blessing from walking in his commandments, and we see that and we experience that. I love love that passage in Matthew 5, right, on the Sermon on the Mount, where he's talking about all the blessed statements. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. So it isn't like that the Bible is telling us as Christians, we're supposed to have a sour look on our face and we're not supposed to have a countenance that is joyous. But I also, you know, if you really dig into those statements, even in Matthew 5, the meek, those aren't the influencers. You know, those aren't the popular people with everything going on for him. And he says, blessed are those. Uh, The next one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. But for what? Not for, you know, all the stuff that we can have right now, but for righteousness that they will be satisfied. I love that those things actually, even though some people go, see, the Bible wants me to be happy. Well, yes, but look what he's wanting us to find happiness and be blessed in, in meekness, in hunger and thirsting for righteousness, in being merciful, in being pure in heart. That's what that list actually looks like. It's slightly different than perhaps what our prosperity, I just don't want to be I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't ever want to be sick. And I always want to have enough money in the bank. That's not what scripture promises us. So I do see and experientially I have felt that I'm sure you guys have too, the blessing of walking as commandments, because we do see and experience that. But I wonder if even those sometimes we put too much weight on those being felt and having that feeling of everything going well. And we put more weight on that rather than seeing that those things are just a byproduct of the way that the Lord loves us and that we will have blessings, but they're not necessarily our aim. That's for sure. The last one I want to look at and is really just kind of encompassing all of them, but this is a really big deal. And again, I think that if you are a mom of a high school kid or, you know, even junior high, it's never too young to start talking about this stuff. But A mark of a cultural Christian is choosing a church based on any of those things that we've just talked about today or in last week's episode. And this is where we have to be so discerning because I'm going to tell you right now, if your kiddo is going to go to college and they're going to want to find a church somewhere, maybe the first place they're going to go. I mean, I always did tell my kids, yeah, start at the website, look and see what it says. But sometimes you'll see some red flags on websites and sometimes you won't. Sometimes you could things can look and sound pretty good on there, even in their about page, even in their belief statement. But then once you start going and you you get into some of the sermons and you realize, huh, they're kind of denying who Jesus is. Or maybe it's they start hearing some things that 
say that you don't really need to repent or the basically good teaching. I'm guaranteed almost every time it's going to be more subtle than that. But I do think it's something that not only we need to be very discerning about, but we also need to help the younger that we're training up to be able to spot some of these things. So that's why I wanted to kind of go through this list. And I'm sure there's more, but I thought that Got Questions did a great job of giving some general markers for things that we can look at, because a lot of the other things that you may see would probably fall under those categories. But I enjoyed going through these because it helped me to even look at them and then be able to look at the scripture on on really refuting these things and why when you hear some of the nonsense or see something that maybe sounds good, like Jesus being a social reformer or Jesus just doing things that would diminish who he is how that lines up with scripture. You know, it's in Acts 11.26 that that's when the the very first disciples were called Christians. That's the first time when we see that name. And it just meant little Christ. It was intended to be an insult, but unfortunately, the term lost its meaning because it became something that they were like, well, we kind of like that. We want to be known as someone who is an imitator of Christ, someone who wants to be like him hey, we'll take being a little Christ. And so that's where that term first came from. But a Christian, here's all this list, you know, of all the cultural stuff that we see. But I do want to bring it home and just make sure we're crystallizing what a Christian really is, according to the Bible. I know we've had a lot of scripture in there too, but just to highlight a couple things And these are where we get into kind of some essential doctrine. And one of those essential doctrines is that Jesus is God. We got to believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. I love Colossians 1 that talks about his preeminence. It's just uh, fantastic. Colossians 1, 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. That's Jesus right there. All of those things that it just described there, that is Jesus. He is preeminent. He is God. And that's critical to believing who we are as Christians. You must believe that Jesus is God. And a lot of places have gone wrong right here. And I think we see this one a lot. I don't know. Maybe I'm just more aware of it right now. Maybe it's maybe you see some other ones that are more predominant. But I see this one a lot because it's into diminishing who Jesus is that we just focus on that he was kind of just like us. This is like the examples that we gave. I did that podcast with uh, Nate DeCoste on watering down Jesus. So you see where people really go astray when they try to detract from anything that Jesus said, who he was, what he did. And there's lots of that, that he gets us campaign. I'm just going to call it out right now. It was like billboards and things on football games. They were ads all over this last year. And I think there's some major missteps with that campaign because they are taking away from who the Jesus of the Bible is, as if the Jesus in the Bible is just somehow not enough. And so they they modernize him and they try to make him more, more culturally relevant, all with perhaps a very good intent of being very evangelistic. But I take issue with that because I, I think that we need to take Jesus as who the Bible says that he is. We don't need to help him out. We don't need to make him more culturally relevant, and we don't need to, you know, make him look like us. We really don't. We need to take Jesus for who Scripture says that he is. 
that one's that big essential doctrine. You got to believe that Jesus is God. Can't diminish who he is. A follower of Jesus, you need to accept him as the way, the truth, the life. Just like John 14, 6 said. To be a follower in Jesus, you must believe in his exclusivity, meaning no one can come to the Father except through him. There's only one way. If Romans 10, 9, and 10, you know, so Romans 10, 9, and 10 is the passage that says that if we believe in our heart that Jesus died on the cross for sins and rose from the dead, if you believe those things, you confess it with your mouth, believe in your heart, you are saved. And it says the Spirit of God dwells in you. Knowing Jesus is the only way, then Romans 10, 9, and 10, knowing how we get that, and that's just by belief and confession with the mouth, then we get the Spirit of God that dwells in us. And that's a mark of the Christian, that the Spirit of God dwells in us. Romans 9 through 11 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. That's a mark of being a biblical Christian, that the Spirit of God dwells in us. So if we've done that Romans 10, 9 and 10, that we've believed and we've confessed with the mouth, and we believe that, we know that Jesus is God and that he is the only way to heaven. We recognize that we have sinned, that we need to repent, all of those things. The mark of a biblical Christian is that the spirit of God dwells in you. And the thing is, is I hope as Christians, we don't get you know so used to hearing even terms like that, that we're like, okay, yeah, 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 the spirit of God is in me. Because you got to listen to the rest of that passage when it says that the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that's the one we're talking about. Probably if we're going to think about the most dramatic, powerful miracle that you could ever conceive of, it's going to be probably raising someone, their physical body from the dead. That same spirit is the one that dwells in us. That's a mark of a biblical Christian. The thing that I think is interesting with all of this is that culture thinks that it's somehow making this more palatable version of Christianity. I try to figure out like what is its appeal. And I think that is probably what it's trying to sell is that it's just a little easier to swallow, right? You know, if, if it's a little easier if you don't have to believe all of scripture, you know, if you can just take the parts that you like and all of those things. And so perhaps their, I'm going to say shallow selling point is that this is the easier way to go. But what a sad substitution to the real thing. Like, think of that passage I just read from Romans 8, 9 through 11, that's talking about the Spirit of God that dwells in you, having believed that Jesus is God that died on the cross for your sins, for my sins. That Spirit is what dwells in you. That's pretty remarkable. And I would by far choose that, what the Bible actually says about what a biblical Christian looks like, than what the world's knockoff and just flat out wrong definition that it's giving. And definitions aside, like we've talked about before, this is an issue that has eternal ramifications because we don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to go, well, maybe I don't need to repent of my sin. Maybe I really don't have to acknowledge that Jesus is the only way because scripture says that you do. And if you choose to not, well, then what? Then you're in that passage that we read at the concluding last week's episode of where the Lord says, depart from me. I never knew you. 
that's traumatizing to our culture, right? They don't want to talk about that. That's too scary. But we better think about it because our eternity depends on it. So I think I'm going to sprinkle in some episodes. I don't know if I'll do them in a row. I don't know if we'll sprinkle them in here and there. But there's a couple different ones of these cultural Christian titles, labels, I guess you could call them, that I want to look at a little bit. And I think we see several ways, different hats that this idea of being a cultural Christian and what it looks like and things that I think we need to be careful of. I'll give you an example of just one that I, I think we'll talk about here in the future. But I want to talk about the I just think or I just feel Christians. You know, the feelings Christian. This, again, totally falls underneath the umbrella of cultural Christian. But the feelings Christian is the one that, well, if they hear a hard scripture or somebody challenges them, that just doesn't feel right. And their feelings, their whether it's their, their happiness, their comfort, or just even their own intellect, if it doesn't jam with that, they kind of throw it out. And I think especially in maybe our younger generations, I don't know, you guys can send me some messages and and tell me where you think you see the feelings, Christian. I'd love to hear your thoughts. But we see that a lot. And again, that's where I get so excited about just being able to be pointing back to the Word of God, because that's the one that doesn't change. Our feelings change. We can, man, we can change all kinds of stuff. But God never changes, and neither does His Word. So the feelings, Christian, Hearing yourself say, if somebody challenges something hard and go, oh, that just, I don't, that just doesn't feel right. Well, that's fine as long as that feeling matches what the word says. But if it doesn't, you need to check that feeling because it's part of that, your heart that is deceitful and wicked. And we need to recognize that, mark that and go, no, it's not my feelings that matter here. It's what God says that matters here. So that's just an example of one. I think there's a couple different that we kind of see under this whole umbrella of cultural Christian that is, again, not just something that we see in our communities at large, but perhaps even within our churches in a big way. Now, I want to end this, though. I told you last week that I wanted to give us some hope in some of this, too, because I don't want this to just be this huge, heavy word on this. I want you guys to be discerning. I want you to mark these things that the world is deceitful about, how it defines what the Bible says a real Christian looks like. But maybe you've kind of gotten sucked into some of this. It's really easy to start following someone, maybe on Instagram or maybe a blog you follow or or something where they say things that sound mostly good. And maybe you've kind of found yourself kind of getting sucked into that a little bit. And, huh, maybe that is right. And maybe not spending as much time in God's word and spending more time hearing those messages. I just want to encourage you to go back to first things. We've already talked about repentance a lot. Man, we are constantly, we're in a state of sin, right? We are constantly needing to confess our sins one to another and, of course, to the Lord, knowing that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We get to start new, start clean, and it's not something you do just at New Year's. It's not just something you can do just in the morning. Anytime we can come to the Lord, confess our sins, repent. Now, remember that word repent is not just like, not just when the siblings are fighting and the one turns to the other one goes, sorry. That's not what repentance is. Repentance means to change your mind. It means to actually look at the thing that you've been walking in, that you've been practicing, or that maybe that influencer that you've been listening to and change your mind about that thing. And the way we change our mind is that's that Romans 12, 2 style, that the word that we will be transformed by the renewing of our mind and in letting God's word renew our minds. 
Okay, not other messages, not other stuff we hear out there, but letting his word change our minds, transform our minds. That's the idea of repentance. You know, really having a changed mind and walking the other direction. And then the second part I want to encourage us is just to do the first things. The episode a couple of weeks ago when we talked about what kind of Christian are you and we talked about the church in Ephesus in Revelation that he marked to them that they had lost their first love. That was the thing that he was his mark against them. And then towards the end, he encourages them to do a couple things. And he tells them to repent, to, you know, go back, go back to how you were when you had that first love. Go back to the first things. C.S. Lewis and God in the Dock, he, he has this statement, this quote, he says, you can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. Now, if that sounds confusing to you, I think there's a really important kind of truth packed into this statement that he gives. Because we like to get the second things, meaning the byproducts of stuff. And we focus on the thing maybe that makes us happy or maybe this idea of, hey, maybe it's the social reformer Jesus. I like this idea of Jesus being that kind of Jesus. And we like maybe even some of the byproducts of that, of helping others and those types of things, which are good things. But if you're focusing so much on those second things and you're not putting the first things first, you're going to get it out of order. So his point is, is that you need to put the first things first. This is all Matthew 6.33, right? When it says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Seek Jesus first. Seek what he says about what it means to follow Christ. And all the other stuff, it'll totally come, but we can go back to those first things. So if you found yourself in a place where maybe you have been buying into some of these messages that maybe there's a little check in your heart. And if there is, I would say that would might be the Holy Spirit kind of giving you a little check. That's that knower that the Lord gave us to go, this doesn't quite sound right. There's a little bit of a flag here. And if you f- feel that about something that you've been reading or seeing or maybe an idea that's been brewing in your mind, that's when we take it back to God's word and say, what does God say about this? What does his word tell me to do about this? So we always get to come to the Lord. We always get to repent. We get to change our mind about these things. And he changes our heart. I love that. We need to put the first things first. That's what was the word to the church in Ephesus and Revelation. And it's the word to us too. Go back to the first things. Go back to our first love. Go back to just focusing on Jesus and his word and what he says and not the other nonsense. The last thing I want to leave us with in how we can kind of define what it looks like to truly be a Christian defined as the Bible would is in the word acknowledge. And this is so interesting to me. I love when the Lord does this. So I was in my just regular Bible reading. I've just started my reading plan again for the year, which unusually this time, guys, I started it close to the first of the year which in the past I've not done that. I've already learned after like three days, I'm definitely going to go at a different pace, which guess what? That's completely fine. If you have five things on your reading list and you only get to two chapters, cool, no problem. But this word acknowledge came up today. And first it popped up in my kids' devotions. My husband was leading them through Proverbs 3, where it has that wonderful verse that we all love and know. Those two verses say, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. 
acknowledge him. So I saw that there and I kind of even looked, I did a little word study on it. You know, what is the Old Testament word for acknowledge? And in the Hebrew, that word is to know. So it's talking about to know God, but it's not just, it's to cognitively know God, it's to experientially know him. It's also to understand. And then it also has the implication of to make him known. So with all of those definitions packed into your brain right there, listen to verse six again, in all your ways, acknowledge him. In other words, know him, know him mentally, know him experientially, understand him and make him known. That's what's meant by acknowledge. So then I was in another portion of scripture in Matthew 10, 32 through 33. It says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. There, the New Testament word acknowledge has a couple basically same types of meanings, but there's a few other words to it. To admit, to profess publicly, or to confess is all encased in that word acknowledge. So I love when the Lord kind of throws something together. Here I had in two different places this word acknowledge, and I thought, you know what? Acknowledgement is really what it is to be a biblical Christian as God's word tells us to be. Do we acknowledge Jesus? Do we know him cognitively? Do we know him experientially? Meaning like, do we have relationship with him? But then also within that word, do we make him known? Do we profess him publicly? Are we cool with talking to our kids about Jesus or our coworker or our friend or whoever? Or do we just kind of want to keep it kind of general, keep it, you know, moralistic, keep it about God? Or are we willing to call Jesus out and proclaim him publicly? Can we do that? A Christian described biblically, not culturally, is going to know Jesus, is going to make him known. So maybe that right there, does a cultural Christian pass that test? Does a cultural Christian, do they know him and do they make him known? Do they acknowledge him? Or are they doing some of these other markers like we've talked about, watering down who Jesus is? And so doing that, maybe they're doing like what we talked about in Ephesians, where they're just following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, right? And the sons of disobedience that are at work. Is that where they're heading? Or maybe they're elevating their own modern understanding over the words of God. He needs to be more relevant. We need to keep up with the times. Maybe they're timid. Maybe they don't want to appear too crazy Christian. Maybe they don't want to like see things quite so black and white as scripture has them. Or maybe they want to redefine words like we've talked about that God clearly defines. Everything from love, gender, marriage, sanctity of life, truth. God has something to say about those. And his word is very, very clear. But perhaps the most concise way to just wrap this up is just to say, do we acknowledge Jesus? Do we know him? Do we have relationship with him? Do we make him known? I've loved looking at this. This has been a, a study that's actually taken me several weeks. Sometimes a podcast, I they come together quickly. Some of them, I just spend so much time going back and forth with scriptures, and I've just really enjoyed this one. If you guys have comments or questions on this, I'd love to hear what you're kind of meditating on, things that's maybe challenged you, maybe things that you have seen as more of that under that umbrella of that cultural Christian that we need to mark and snap us back into that biblical right 
understanding of what it means to follow Christ. So if you got comments, shoot us an email at devotedpodcast at atheecreek.com. You can also message us at atheywomen. We check those messages. So wherever you're at, we would love to hear from you guys. And we will catch you here on the Devoted Podcast next week. Thank you for tuning in to the Devoted Podcast. We are a ministry of Athey Creek Christian Fellowship in West Lynn, Oregon. For more resources, or if you need prayer or encouragement, send us an email at devotedpodcast at atheycreek.com.